standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 199 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and my love of oven chips has become painful. Now I need to talk to you about this, Mick. Yeah. Sorry, this isn't an intervention, don't worry. <laughs> I'm just... I'm just intrigued. What is it about the oven chip? Can you recommend a good one? Because I find them quite flowery. I don't, I'm not a fan. McCain's crinkle cut oven chip is a thing of joy. The crinkle cut makes it crispier. There's some sort of coating that's delicious. You get little crosley ones that are just crunchy scraps of delight. But if you are overexcited by oven chips, as I am, I, I do. Maybe I need an intervention, Jen. Maybe it's verging on having a problem. <laughs> but I, I didn't wait long enough before I shoved one in my gob and I have burnt the entire roof of my mouth. Love hurts. <sighs> Love hurts. It does, yeah. The injury that will always... You never learn, do you? Not you, I mean one, obviously. One never learns no. about the... Uh... The classic pizza injury, if you will. Lava cheese. If I'm hungry, though, I'm just not going to wait. I'm just going to ruin the rest of my eating for a day and a half. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm Jen Offord, and yesterday I met Clive Owen. Again? Haven't you met him before? I haven't met him before. I've seen him in the pub before. Isn't he I've your never dad? actually met him. <laughs> Isn't he my dad? It'd be weird if it was my dad. Less said about that, the better. Listeners of the podcast will know that um, there is a very lovely little cinema in my hometown called The Electric Palace, which has been closed for a very long time for a very complicated refurbishment project. And it's just reopened. And I was absolutely fucking delighted to go to the cinema. Not once, but twice this weekend. Shut up! I know, I saw The Batman and I saw The I think you'll find it's The Batman. Yeah, and someone someone in the cinema did twice refer to it as... Batman, um, Batman, which was yeah. which was lovely. He didn't think much of Batman. I thought it was okay. And then yesterday, Clive Owen came along as the patron of the Electric Palace to give a little speech, and uh, it's all very nice. How's he looking? Would Hannah be scared of him? She finds him quite creepy. Isn't she scared of Jude Law? Oh, she's oh, like Jude him. Law is the stuff of her nightmares. But I think the reason she's scared of Jude Law is because of the film he was in with Clive Owen, which is closer. The, closer yeah in which yeah. i think that is where her fear of jude law stems from but i think she also found clive owen quite creepy in it his character is quite creepy in it obviously nominated for an oscar for that right. one right he does creepy well close personal friend of mine clive owen well, <laughs> well next time you two were hanging out at the electric yeah. palace yeah. tell him i thoroughly enjoy the film shoot him up it's very silly but it's <laughs> joyful <laughs> i will do Believe me, people said sillier things to him yesterday. (laughs) Later on, Hannah chats to comedian Lucy Beaumont, co-writer of Channel 4's new sitcom Hull Raisers, about why Hull is no longer the butt of a national joke and playing herself in Meet the Richardsons. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I talk to Hannah Walker-Brown about her incredible new book, A Delicate Game, which is about brain injury in sport. And things get real freaky in Rated or Dated as we watch 1977's Three Women and ask, is it a good idea to make one of your dreams into an actual film? (laughs) (laughs) But first, a surprising amount of good news. Eventually, it's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where the term right honourable gets more laughable every week. Oh, Mick. They're awful. They are. 
I'll launch into the first, uh, <laughs> the first, <laughs> why they're awful, shall I? This okay. isn't the good news yet, listeners, no. just in case you were getting excited. We'll get there, we'll get there. So you remember, Mick, a couple of weeks ago, we were chatting about Rishi Rich Sunak, mm-hmm. yeah, a.k.a. Yeah. Chancellor of the Exchequer, a.k.a. the man responsible for tax laws and indeed the rate of tax paid by the electorate. That's the budget. Yeah, we were talking about his wife, Akshata Murthy, the daughter of a tech billionaire who owns a 0.91% share in her father's business, Infosys. It was a bit awkward because it was alleged that the company was still operating in Russia and that as a result, yeah, Ms. Murthy would have been benefiting financially from that. Sunak dismissed that criticism and later said he felt like Will Smith at the Oscars. Take his wife's name out of your fucking mouth! Really unreasonable to raise that, you prick. Stop bullying her, yeah? So things got significantly worse for Sunak last week after it emerged that his wife is in fact a non-dom, retaining her Indian citizenship and as a result she does not have to pay UK tax on all of her earnings. It's not unreasonable that she wants to retain her Indian citizenship. You can't, under Indian law, hold dual citizenship. And some people care about that shit, right? Yeah, yeah totally. Mm-hmm. And not just because it saves them a <laughs> fuck ton of cash on their tax bill. Besides, her shares are worth 700 million quid. And that is a lot of money. So too is the £11.6 million dividend she received last year from it. And who would pay an extra £2.1 million in tax if they didn't have to? I mean, those amounts are so high, I can't, I can't actually bend my head around what that much money means. I mean, it's tricky, isn't it? Because she's not actually done anything illegal. This is mm. all above board. And the problem is, to my mind, that it shouldn't be legal to shirk your tax bill. Mick, I would bet at least one pound that you agree with me on this. I'm not going to take you up on that, but I'm just going to give you a pound <laughs> and say yes. <laughs> Thank you. Another 699 million of those and I'll be uh, <laughs> looking to save some cash. Anyway, presentationally, it does make you look like a bit of an asshole, though, doesn't it? When you have totally. assets in excess of 700 million pounds and you are quibbling over two million pounds. And when your husband has just unveiled a spring statement which gave tax breaks to people wanting to install solar fucking panels while British households face the biggest cost of living increase in 50 years. Oh, I think that looks really, really bad, doesn't it? It looks really bad. Yeah. So then what if it then emerged that you two, the Chancellor of the Exchequer in the government of the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland, also has, hang on, a US green card allowing you permanent residence in that country until October last year? Hmm. Were you keeping it just in case it didn't work out for you as the man holding the second highest position in public office (laughs) in the UK? Oh, God. What's your response, buddy? Oh, okay. It's to order an inquiry as to how this information came to be public knowledge. But it is public knowledge. So Sunak's response is, oh, man, this public knowledge is really fucking me over. Why is this public yeah, knowledge? Exactly, exactly. So the other thing he tried to do, which I just find, I mean, I find it morally reprehensible, but he's tried to jump on that whole, like, if you say something bad about a woman then you're obviously a misogynist. It's like, well, you know, equality means women can be arseholes as well, doesn't it? But whatever. 
take that out of the equation, I agree it would be like really bad to pick on Rishi Sunak's wife as a means of political point scoring, and we definitely shouldn't engage in it because it is misogynistic. So why don't we instead take a minute to consider how catastrophically badly this reflects on Rishi Sunak himself, uh-huh. a.k.a. the Chancellor of the Exchequer, a.k.a. the man responsible for tax policy in England and Wales? Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to keep the focus on him being a bellend. Sunak's history, his work history, is a banker, right? He was a banker. All he's interested in is making money. And obviously, if you're Chancellor of the Exchequer, let's take my favourite Chancellor of the Exchequer in my lifetime, Gordon Brown. Yeah. He gave a shit about society. He gave a shit about people. He still gives a shit about people. And that is, like, super important part of the job that Sunak just doesn't have. It is basic stuff and the thing that annoys me so much about it is and it's the same week that we found out you know about the fines that have been handed out by the police who investigated the parties at number 10 blah 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 and it's just like these bastards are getting away with it no wonder they keep being bastards because they just like they just keep getting away with being bastards we've got a teflon government it's infinitely depressing and i've talked about this before but like our outrage used to have currency Like, it used to mean something, didn't it? He would have lost his job for this in a different government with a different prime minister. A head would have rolled for this. But Uh there's, like, no heads ever fucking roll unless... Well, I think you're going to talk about someone in a minute, but unless, basically, the prime minister already doesn't like you, I guess, right? Right. Yeah. No, totally. They do not feel like they work for us at all. Let's let's stick with the shower in power. It has always been and always will be baffling that just because someone is seen as a decent politician, and by that I very much mean gets voted in rather than displays any kind of moral compass. Mm. They're given responsibility for a sector of society they have no experience in, shit all aptitude for, and more often than not give zero shits about. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're an economist by trade, but the people of West Suffolk have voted you in since 2010. Okay, well, you can have the NHS in a pandemic until you're caught snogging an aide in a cupboard. (laughs) Why not, eh? (laughs) Don't know that Britain's an island? Righto, we'll start you off with Brexit, then make you foreign secretary. (laughs) Yeah, sure, take your holidays whenever you want, no bother at all, (laughs) fuckface. And while getting Hatmancock and Dominic Raab to do, well anything is a bona fide head scratcher for me nothing currently fucks my goat quite so much as rent a gob nadine doris being secretary of state for digital culture media and sport yogurt's got more culture than doris (laughs) and i know it's a prick move to point out someone's bad spelling and grammar on twitter but when that person's secretary of state for digital culture media and sport Maybe take some time out for metaphorically sucking Boris Johnson's balls to learn how to use an apostrophe, Nadine. Anyway. Stop bullying her, for God's sake, you bully. I will not stop bullying her, because she's a (laughs) a horrible prick. Anyway, Doris recently announced that the government wants to sell Channel 4 and claims that, far from being motivated by revenge for critical coverage, ministers are aiming to ensure the channel thrives in the long term. Cool. Okay, sure. Thing is, Channel 4 doesn't need saving. It is a thriving national asset with a remit to serve the public interest and a very smart business model. 
Established by Margaret Thatcher's government in 1982 to provide a culturally challenging alternative to BBC One, BBC Two and ITV, Channel 4 is publicly owned but commercially funded and throughout its four decades hasn't taken a penny in support from the taxpayer. Hmm. There's a little bit of information that had flown right over Doris's shockingly (laughs) uninformed head. Also, unlike other broadcasters, rather than being in debt, Channel 4 currently has £270 million in cash in the bank. It's doing all right and it's serving us well, is what I'm saying. Whether you're a fan of excellent news coverage and investigative journalism, or you like primetime, award-bothering, important drama, or, you know, Hollyoaks and Hollyoaks specials at your back, <laughs> Channel 4's got your back for no cash money. There's just no compelling case to sell it. And if you don't believe me, believe David Attenborough. And although the government is yet to publish the results of the 60,000 responses to its consultation on the proposed privatisation, the signs are that they were overwhelmingly in favour of keeping Channel 4 in public ownership. And yet, with a price tag of £1 billion attached to the broadcaster and quite a lot of American interest, the government is pressing ahead anyway. More news as it happens. Would you like some good news, Mick? Yes, please. Okay. Right, well, as of last week, the biggest reform of divorce laws in 50 years, that's what everyone was calling it anyway, came into force with the introduction of no-fault divorces in England and Wales for the first time. Previously, if you wanted to get divorced, and Mick, I'm quite sure this doesn't apply to you, but just, you know, for future <laughs> reference. Sure, had to... sure, it's good, it's good to have it in the bank. You had to separate for two years first with consent from both sides or five years without consent from both sides or one party had to instigate the divorce on the grounds of adultery unreasonable behavior or desertion the new law establishes a minimum time frame of 26 weeks between application which can now be made jointly and the final order which is much less time than two years but it doesn't guarantee a divorce within six months, which is sort of fairly important to note in, in all of this high praise for what's going on. Jen just did a little whoop whoop sign. Whoop whoop. I don't know why it's not great for a podcast, but thanks Mick for, um, for <laughs> explaining that. Anyway, so what is the point of it all? I hear you ask. Well, it's just not very nice, is it, to have to find fault with someone where it may not actually really be there at all, all the while potentially exposing loved ones, including kids, to the emotional anguish of it all, or worse still, remaining in a marriage that you don't want to be in for up to five years, which is a long old time, and especially if your spouse is abusive, because the divorce has been contested. Under the new law, it will no longer be possible to contest a divorce, and that is, I think, very good news indeed. I think it's definitely got more pros than cons for sure a bonus piece of good news here and a big congratulations to friend of the podcast liz carr who won the olivier award for best supporting actress for her role in the normal heart and now mickey is making the whoop whoop whoop, whoop. gesture yeah it's a whoop whoop gesture put sort of pressing the ceiling away from me i'm quite tired now She used her acceptance speech to highlight concerns about the accessibility of theatre to vulnerable people in the post-pandemic world. (laughs) (laughs) Post-pandemic. I'm laughing with COVID. (laughs) Mickey, Mickey currently has COVID. Anyway, well done, Liz, and quite right too. Absolutely. An extra woot woot for the wonderful Liz Carr. More news next time. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. 
It's that time of the week where I really do not care whether men are interested in our stories or not. They are already well provided for by hundreds of other media outlets. As much as I wholeheartedly agree with them, those aren't actually my words. Rather, they're those of pioneering journalist Nazrin Mohamed Ahmed, chief editor of Bilan, Somalia's first all-women media house. Funded by the United Nations Development Programme, the UNDP, as a year-long pilot, Bilan's team of six will have full editorial autonomy to produce content for TV, radio and online, reporting on gender-based violence, women in politics and female entrepreneurs. Now, this might not surprise you, listeners, but women's stories are rarely told in the Somali media because most reporters are men. No. And the women that do work in the traditional Somali media face multiple challenges from being ignored and denied promotions to, you know, the age-old bullying and sexual harassment. For the first time, we have a space where we feel safe physically and mentally, said Ahmed. Never before have Somali female journalists been given the freedom, opportunity and power to decide what stories they want to tell and how they want to tell them. I mean, it is cracking news. A positive Mm. sexism of the week. I mean, obviously it's spanned from many, many decades and centuries of sexism, but (laughs) let's, let's keep a focus on the silver lining. Jocelyn Mason, the UNDP's resident representative in Somalia's capital, Mogadishu, said she was confident Bilan, which, by the way, means clear and bright in Somali, would become a permanent setup. Adding, we hope this will be a game changer for the Somali media scene, opening up new opportunities for women journalists and shining a light on subjects that have been ignored, particularly those that are important for women. More whoop whooping, Jen. Whoop whoop. Yeah. Raising the roof, that's what it's called. (laughs) We're raising the roof. Hi, Hannah here. I am joined on the Zoom by the delightful Lucy Beaumont. Hello, Lucy. Hello, hello. (laughs) This is actually your second appearance on Standard Issue because you did a live show for us in Newcastle. And if people listening are thinking, hang on, why did I not hear that? It's because we had a technical problem and oh, we could never man. release it as a podcast. You joke. Oh, what a shame. Because it was a brilliant night. It was. So it? I was wondering, Lucy, if you could just, just tell all those jokes again now. <laughs> <laughs> and that would be great. You did tell an incredible joke about a pair of wet knickers on uh, 8 Out of 10 Cats, which was absolutely glorious. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, it wasn't a joke. Yeah, it was. I, I, I weaved myself, didn't I, before I went <laughs> It makes it even more special for the people that actually paid good money and came to see yeah. it because nobody else would have seen it. Now, we're here to talk about Hull Raisers, your new yeah. sitcom, which I've been lucky enough to see two episodes of, even though it doesn't come out until the 12th of April, which will be last night for people listening to this podcast now. Yeah. How pleased are you with that? I take it you've seen all six episodes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I am. I'm, I'm one of three writers on the show. I, I wrote the pilot, Anne-Marie O'Connor and Kaz Moran. That is Kathleen Moran's sister, but yeah. I bet she must hear I would hear it if people get, <laughs> get reference in my mouth. I know when people go, John's wife. <laughs> it, it annoys me but um but but just you know because of the writing dynasty in the family you know and yeah it, it was an Israeli sitcom that is massive in Israel um called Little Mom um they, they, they're now gone on to like do movies and stuff then the, the cast in that and 
the fabled, brilliant production company, female, all-female production company, they bought the rights to it. And I've basically changed it so you would never know. (laughs) (laughs) It's a waste of money, really, buying the rights because it's nothing like the original. (laughs) The heart of it, the the energy of it is what struck me about the original is that it is totally a celebration of female friendships um, and, you know, being a mum and being a sister and a parent, you know, all tied up into one. And the, the sort of mad antics that they get up to, really. It was great that they were up for me setting it where I used to live. And and, and the women are, I sort of took the spirit of the women in the original and then sort of tried to place them in the body of, <laughs> of my friends. Um, so each character is sort of a real person, really, that's sort of based on... And I wanted to try and capture that dialogue, really, that 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 the how that yeah, you know, that is a very northern thing. But the the more time I spend in like you know um, other places, I think it's not a northern thing. It's it's a working class thing. Mm-hmm. It's um, of how you interact with each other and make it, it. It might seem like an argument, but it's not. It's love. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I think what really struck me about it is, and I think people, a lot of people don't have this in their life because a lot of people move, so they don't live in the city that they, or the town or even the village that they grew up in, is how sort of interconnected they are in that you're not just friends with your friend. You end up being part of their entire family. You know their mum. You bump into their brother in the street and can have a full-blown conversation. And that's something I think you lack when you move to a place and you've got friends whose parents also live in different places. You don't yeah. you don't get to know the entire family. And I think that's a really interesting aspect of friendship when you all stay in the same town is that you all become sort of part of one massive family and one big community. Yeah, totally. And I, I know um, Fiona McDermott at Channel 4, it was a big big note you know to, to for us to keep from her to for us to keep remembering to, you know she she knows this and she know that that and she knows it's lovely to see that and she kept saying you've got such a lovely sort of family and extended family keep bringing them into each other's lives mm. and each other's stories which is it's quite hard to do <laughs> whether you've got three <laughs> an a plot a b plot and a c plot but it is and and I, I, I mean growing up that's how it was we used to do the rounds i don't you know i'm sure a lot of people will remember that I don't know whether that is just like you say I've now moved on and don't live like that or if people still do but you did the rounds on a Saturday you went you know so an auntie so the cousins yeah. and you know your great grandma and and you very much kept you lived near each other and you was in 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 and out of each other's houses it's something that I think yeah we've lost a bit haven't we yeah that yeah. Could be- yeah I think I think so because I was talking to my brother about my nephew and how he doesn't really know many of my nephew's friends in the really? way that my parents knew our friends, because A, they do a lot of stuff online, mm. and B, like, my nephew's got his own phone. So when I used to have to ring up one of my friends, I used to have to ring the landline, and sometimes I would get their dad answer, <laughs> and you'd have to have a little bit of polite conversation with him or with the mum or whatever, and you just sort of had more of an interaction, I think, whereas yeah. now kids are able to contact other kids without there being parents involved in that. That's so true. Yeah, I never thought about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, on a phone now, you're literally able to go off in your own world as well, aren't you? You could be in a room of people and you're not really there. It's very scary. (laughs) Yeah, 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think they actually talk on the phone that generation so much, do they? They no, it's not, is it? Or whatever. Um, and you, you, and it's that thing you used to have to have a phone call, like wherever the phone was as well. <laughs> yeah. While your dad was listening to the news yeah. unbelievably loudly. Yeah. I think the other thing that struck me about it is it's it's quite unusual in comedy, and it's it's about people who are, to all extents and purposes, happily married. Oh, yeah. Yeah, never thought about that. <laughs> there doesn't seem to be... I mean, they have their ups and downs, but there doesn't seem to be, like, the usual sort of either women moaning about their husbands or husbands moaning about their wives that has sort of infected sitcoms for years and years and years and years, I think. They do. They really love the the husbands. Um, Paula in it, the sister of the, the, the main character, uh, Tony, she adores her husband. He's a big teddy bear, you know, and she wears the trousers in the family, you know. He's probably quite, a, not feminine's the wrong way, but he's, he's more sensitive than she is. I think, you know, you can imagine the kids would go to him. But that is very, that's a, I hate saying a whole thing because it generalises it. I must say more my family thing because we've got these very strong, opinionated, matriarch women in the family, you know, who, yeah, they adore each other, but, yeah, you wouldn't mess with them. (laughs) (laughs) I think we tried to make it real to how we felt, well, how I felt that family would be rather than a telly version of it. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. It feels more sort of authentic in that sense. Yeah, I think so. Let's talk about Hull. My best mate's from Hull. And he says that never has one city that's been visited by so few people and yet so many people have an opinion on it. It's become to like, to some extent the butt of a joke. And he says, and if I say to people, have you been to Hull? They're like, no. And he's like, well, where is this? Where's the worst place Hull idea coming from? Do you feel the need to defend it? Yeah, I hope that's dying out now. I think it will do. I think that was it was before my time when that sort of thing started, when you never heard a Hull accent on TV. You know, you didn't... You, we've always been big on rugby. We've always had really brilliant rugby teams, but we never had a, a premiership football team. We're at the end of the line, you know, in, this, in the sense that you'd have to travel to Hull. You can't get out from anywhere. You can't go, you know, it doesn't connect to anywhere. Yeah. It used to be... I think there was a quote in... Like, Blackadder once made a reference to Hull and there was, I think it was good I think it's it's back from when in the 70s it was decimated by because it lost its industry mm. it lost its main industry which was fishing and then the Thatcher era just absolutely crucified it and it was you know I've been told apart from like an amazing art scene because it had such a brilliant art college and it had such brilliant bands apart from that Pat to living hall was dull. It was it was hard. Mm. It was you know it it had this amazing history that successive councils had never had done anything about. They'd never created a tourism, even though it's an incredible place. You mm. know, William Wilberforce, Beth and William Wilberforce, it you know abolished slavery, and there's still what's left of it being virtually bombed out there's still some really incredible buildings but it's now you know it's got a really forward thinking council and it's had a team that's been premiership and it knows it's culturally really significant and it's hosted a huge arts festival and 
down by the marina is really trendy and they're starting to now retain students from Hull University and I think that's a sign of a really healthy mm. city when your students want to stay here. So I, I, it's a long way of saying, I think that butt of the joke thing is is going and I don't think the young generation growing up here, I hope, don't witness that, don't see that. Yeah. And, I, and I hope Hull raises. I would have walked, I think, if I'd have felt it was dumbing down. I mean, there was a lot I didn't get my own way on. Mm. I didn't get my own way on casting. I wanted more whole people in it. But there was lots of reasons why that couldn't happen. But the tone of it, I'm really pleased with what we've captured because I think that's the hardest thing to do. Yeah. I think during the 90s, there was this element, when everyone got obsessed with property prices, when that first started, there was an element of... You know, people would say, this is what a house costs in London. But look what you can buy in Hull, you know. Yeah, and it became yeah. this sort of part of this. I think there was that terrible book, wasn't there, called Shit Towns or something. And I think Hull It was, was that. It's just awful. And, you know, I remember people used to come on a night out in Hull and be like, it, it, there was a hardness to it. But it was only one part of it. And that that's sort of gone. That's gone. And now actually what you've got is like, there's a real quirkiness. It's, it's lovely. It's, it's, I think it's quite European, to be honest. Yeah. Well, it was the European seat of culture a couple of years ago, wasn't it? Yeah. It's funny, though, because I, I read when I was doing some research for this that you actually weren't born in Hull. And it's a funny yeah. story because it reminds me of, I don't know if you ever watched it, but King of the Hill, which I absolutely adore. In it, Hank Hill is obsessed with being a Texan. And that's, that's you know, he is Texas through and through and yet and yet he was born in New York because his parents went on holiday and he was born prematurely and that's exactly what happened to you Mrs Hull was born in Cornwall yeah yeah bizarre absolutely bizarre I'm I'm pleased it's lovely I get to say I'm Cornish um, Cornish blood (laughs) but yeah born on holiday like yeah six weeks premature mum was they were on a camping holiday (laughs) God, camping as well. That's even, uh, yeah, that's even worse. Yeah. Uh, and my granny was drunk. My granny had gone to the clubhouse and was drunk and slept in her boots. For my, my mom. <laughs> and a few hours later, my mum's waters broke. She was like, <laughs> <laughs> they, they didn't have anything for me because they didn't know I was coming. So my, my, my granny went into a shop. And, and found a, a box that said, thank goodness for fresh eggs. And it was in the shape of a cradle. And she she kitted it all out, and I I came back in that. They drove me back in that in a box. Oh, that's delightful. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's very Lucy Beaumont's story. Yeah, I, I feel like a lot of you was like in that foundational moment there. Yeah, you're in Hebden Bridge now, aren't you? We've moved. Oh, have you? Um, yeah, we've moved. We're South Yorkshire now. We've decided we were too far from London. And so we moved and then a pandemic hit and we found that actually we didn't need to be anywhere near London, <laughs> be in the Highlands because everything was going to be on Zoom from now on. Yeah, Hebden Bridge <laughs> is beautiful. I mean, that's where you yeah. film Meet the Richardsons, isn't it? Yeah, that's where we filmed it. And I, I, I hope we film back there again, starting to think the next series will we'll move back. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's also where Happy Valley's filmed. I always like the idea that maybe one day in Meet the Richardsons, you'll walk past the camera crew in the other direction that's doing Sarah Lancashire in the street. Funny you should say that. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> you mean in the space? <laughs> 
Well, I haven't actually got round to watching season three yet, so I'm excited by that prospect. Yes, yeah, because so, season three is currently on now. I mean, obviously, it is a mockumentary rather than a documentary about your yeah. lives. Do you think that people get that, or do you think that people sometimes expect you to be a bit more what you are in that? I don't know. I'm not trying to um, be bothered what people think. <laughs> I, I, I'm, a, I'm a people pleaser, and I'm really trying to focus on what I think <laughs> and not be bothered about what other people think, because... I've no idea, but I think people get really bogged down in what's real and what's not. I know that much because they ask, and I don't really know what's real and what's <laughs> When if I don't really know, we, we, I get confused. But it is, I mean, it is, it's a sick, at the end of the day, it's a sitcom in just a documentary style. But a lot of it is taken from, from our own life. You know, that, that when, when we write a series, I just write down everything that's happened to us. And then we try and make stories out of it. But I think this season three is sort of, I feel like we've got, we know what we're doing now. Because it was new to us. We didn't really know what what we were doing. (laughs) But I feel like, yeah, we've got that balance of it being sitcom and and real. You know, it's like 50-50. In that case, I need to ask you about about John setting himself on fire at a barbecue because that's actually something my dad did when we were kids. Yeah. Not by wearing a stupid suit and spraying it in flammable stuff, but by being a bit drunk and going a bit too heavy on the lighter fluid and the whole thing just went up. I was about nine and it was unbelievably terrifying, but also quite exciting and almost immediately after hilariously funny yeah it was it there was a lot of things going on and he smelt like burning hair for oh god for about a month after that it was horrible oh my god (laughs) so it happens it does happen yeah Yeah. (laughs) barbecue infernos do happen where did you grow up newport pagnell i've lived there yeah i lived the first two years of my life in newport pagnell that's insane obviously yeah yeah yeah, Milton Keynes, they live Milton Keynes and then they live Newport Pagnell because my mum and dad, they worked, um, my mum was set dressing for the BBC, my dad was editing and they were based, wait, wait, it must have been near Milton Keynes, yeah. Yeah, yeah oh, wow. in A little, like a little terrace, but it was like in the country, it's quite a countryside, isn't it? Well, if you drive out of one side of it, you hit Milton Keynes, but if you drive out of the other three sides of it, yeah, you just hit countryside. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I would have been a teenager when you were uh, living there, though. It's probably the point at which I was smoking on a corner being <laughs> really angry that I didn't live somewhere better than uh, it, the Newport Pagnell. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> if we're going to talk about things that you and I have in common, I could bring something else up. You did something mad, and the only other person I know that was dumb or brave or whatever enough to do that was me, which was you entered So You Think You're Funny, having yeah. never done a gig. <laughs> and I did that. <laughs> And you also got to the finals and I also got to the finals, although your comedy career took off. And people, whenever I tell people I did that, they always say, oh, that's insane. What were you thinking? Why would you squander your one chance at say you think you're funny of doing it with no experience whatsoever? And I was like, I just thought if I don't do, if I don't have like a reason to do this, I'm not going to do it. Was that, was that how it was with you? Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's such a long time ago. It feels a bit like a blur. And I don't know about you, like, 
the adrenaline and the nerves, it was almost like being like really drunk where you're almost blacked out. Like I couldn't, I can't tell you. I couldn't, I can't tell you much about that time because I just, it was a whirlwind. Um, I, I think it must have been, to, to be honest, though, like, I, I mean, I'm sure you've had this conversation with people. It's hard now to, because um, it was like, what, 13, 14 years ago, whatever. It's hard now to believe because it's changed so much. But it was so sexist then. Yeah. And it was so male dominated. I wouldn't have been able to have got on at a club. Promoters didn't want mm. a, a woman. Yeah. Agreed. With no experience on. I probably thought it's probably the only way I'm going to get a gig to some extent. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't know anyone who did comedy. I didn't Mm. sort of, I didn't know anyone who, I knew people in the arts, but I didn't know any links to comedy. And yeah, I mean, even having, like I say, got into the semi-final up in Edinburgh, like on the strength of that was my second gig. I, I still really struggled for about the next five years to get people to put me on because, I mean, this was 2002, 2003, something like that. And there just wasn't, mm. you would get that answer, but we've already got a woman on the bill. And that was the answer you get. And, and it was really common. And now women fight back about that. But at the time I was inexperienced. And I didn't know what I was talking about. So I just went, oh, okay. So what else have you got on the horizon? Because I know you're always super busy. Yeah, I tr- yeah, I try whilst I can. And again, it's like I think you see it so much with, you know, because you see the same faces on TV, and actually, you know that it's because well, they've worked for ten years. <laughs> no, yeah. they're going to take everything they can. While whilst because I think with comedians, you always worry, worry, worry there's going to be a shelf life. You know, yeah. someone else is going to come along like you, but a lot more talented. <laughs> you need to make money while you can, but. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm ju- just writing a lot. Um, I'm writing. Um, I've got two uh, scripts in with a, with a channel, so we're you know sort of hoping something materializes there. And writing the next series of of Meet the Richardsons, and um, yeah, and then I, I'm I'm itching to get back into live stuff because I've sort of forgotten that I'm a stand up. I, I haven't done it. I was like, couldn't do a gig now. Like, wouldn't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I like the idea of work, working my way up again, just going back to open that, you know, new material. Yeah. Like, so I think I'll do that. Well, see, John's comic is in his, it's down to what, what we're both doing. He's on tour. He'll be, he's on tour for a year, so I'll be at home a lot. <laughs> yeah. Lucy, this has been absolutely fantastic. Meet the Richardsons is on Dave now. And. Yeah. Hull Racers, which I would recommend everybody takes a look at, started last night on Channel 4. Is it all going up on the website, do you know, at the same time? Yes, yeah, it started last night, yeah, Tuesday the 12th, after Derry Girls, and it's on, yeah, for six weeks, yeah, and it'll it'll be on all four, yeah. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. I, I mean, if, if this hasn't recorded... Don't ever get me back. <laughs> <laughs> You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I'm joined by Hannah Walker-Brown, award-winning podcast producer, documentary maker and author of A Delicate Game. Hello, Hannah. Hello. I was just talking to you off-air, if you like, about how much 
stuff there is in this book obviously that's articulated beautifully by me but just the <laughs> reading it and listening to the podcast that that sort of preceded it the beautiful brain mm. it's just like what the fuck what the fuck <laughs> what the fuck and it just kind of goes on from there so with that introduction hannah i wondered if you could tell me first and foremost what your book is about and how you came to this very fascinating and complicated subject. So A Delicate Game is basically an investigation into the neurodegenerative disease CTE, which stands for chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is caused by concussive or subconcussive blows to the head. And I'm just going to explain concussive and subconcussive because I think there's a lot of confusion around concussion. So concussive hits to the head are those that are well that cause immediate symptoms. So things like blackout or knockout, dizziness, if you ever see somebody kind of stumbling around. So those indicators that you can instantly recognize as something being wrong. Whereas subconcussive hits are those that don't cause immediate symptoms. So that could be things like heading a football, even some instances where someone's sort of taken an elbow to the head, but then just kind of carried on playing in whatever sport. So that's a kind of important differentiation to make, because I think a lot of the um, emphasis on this disease is around concussion, kind of its foundations were laid I suppose in the mainstream with the film concussion which people may have watched um, with Will Smith and essentially how I got into it was I mean we just said off air what the fuck I was sent a um, story about world champion BMX rider Dave Mirror who had been out with friends driven to another friend's house parked his car in their driveway and then put a shotgun to his head and his post-mortem revealed he had this disease CTE in his brain and one of the symptoms is suicide and I just thought how is there this thing that exists that can cause someone to do that and no one's talking about it or if they are talking about it it was very exclusive to the NFL like over here it just wasn't really a thing so I've sort of spent I mean essentially six years now from inception of the podcast to writing the book speaking to so many people who've been kind enough and trusting enough to tell me their stories some absolutely heartbreaking and tragic some are kind of who have been absolutely fucked over (laughs) by sport scientists often on the kind of the good side and that is you know in Australia in America and the UK and a lot of families who have lost people they've really loved to this disease and I think essentially like this book was never for me it's not about me but I did realize that all these individual conversations were happening or all these individual stories were occurring And I wanted to put them all in one place because I think then you get a really strong overview of not just the gravity of the problem, but all the people that have been doing this work for such a long time, that have been fighting this fight for such a long time. And that was important to me, you know, not to give them a voice because they have a voice. They're very vocal on places like Twitter, the charities they run are absolutely amazing. But I thought this was a way of, breaking out of just the kind of science sport conversation and opening it up 
to a wider audience. It's really interesting because I'm, I'm aware of the issue, if you see what I mean. Like I'm aware of, and I think a lot of other mm. people listening will be aware of the issue because of the film Concussion, as you say. And, you know, mm. there have been various things in this country now. I think Alan Shearer made a documentary about the impact of heading a football on, on yeah. footballers. The thing that I think we hear it linked to mostly is degenerative neurological conditions like Alzheimer's, dementia, things like that. Mm. The the suicide and mental health aspect of it, I don't think I knew anything about that. Is that sort of widely understood? I mean, it's out there and, you know, it's not in every case. Like homicide is also a potential symptom, which is when you look at the NFL and people like Aaron Hernandez, for yeah. example, who was diagnosed with one of the worst cases of CTE for his age, that Dr. Anne McKee, who did the um, autopsy, had ever seen. It wasn't used in his defence in court. So I, I'm not saying that's the reason that he did what he did, but mm. that is something that needs to be taken into account. And I think, you know, with a lot of neurodegenerative disease, you can only really confirm what it is at autopsy. Yeah. So if you are diagnosing like dementia, while someone is alive, it can't be definitively picked up until later. So it might be dementia and Alzheimer's, but then later in the autopsy, something else could reveal itself. And I think that's where it gets tricky because there's so much nuance and it's complicated. And I think dementia is something that people can kind of understand and grasp. And when you're in that situation, sitting in a doctor's office with a loved one, like you need to know what's going on. If something can only be diagnosed post-mortem, you're sort of, I don't know, it's not definite. And I think that's very difficult to kind of not have that concrete answer. Not that there's any solution, like there's no cure or treatment for any of this. But I think for a family, it's much more tangible. But like the symptoms are out there. There's mm. loads of research about this. And I think that's another question to ask is, if it's all out there, why doesn't everybody know about it? And that's sort of what I was kind of looking into in the book, like who makes the rules, who decides what information is distributed and where and how is it distributed. And I think one thing about science in particular, like the language is so exclusive, yeah. even saying CTE, like the actual terminology, I still stumble over those words. And I've been saying them for six years. It's not a language that you can kind of, I don't know it doesn't kind of you know roll off the tongue so immediately you're kind of isolating a lot of people so that was another reason I wanted to write about it to kind I don't know try and break that down a little bit and include everyone in that understanding. One of the families that you focus on is the Astle family so Jeff Astle was a mm. at the time League One which is what would have been the Premier League back in the day, West Bromwich Albion player. He's very famous. Mm. He scored, I, I actually looked into it and I can't remember the number, but it's like, it's an insane amount of goals. It's like, it's it's not as many as Thierry Henry mm. scored for Arsenal, but it's like, it's up there. It's, it's, it's a good amount. Anyway, so one of the points about CTE is that it's the cumulative impact, right, of these sub-concussive blows. So it's relatively minor blows, or relatively sort of moderate mm. blows, but it's the cumulative impact of, of so many of those. Can you tell us a little bit about the Astle family and, and what happened with them? That sort of cemented the whole process for me was meeting Dawn Astle, who is so 
tenacious and you know what she's been through and what she's advocated for for two decades now is just phenomenal and um, whilst sort of looking out for everyone else making sure players are safe maintaining a sense of humor like god knows how essentially jeff was the first footballer to be diagnosed with cte his cause of death was industrial disease which means um he was killed at work which is football and that was due to hitting footballs so heading footballs and initially they were given a diagnosis of dementia it was only much later when they were approached by a journalist sam peters because when his cause of death was announced the fa and the pfa promised a joint 10-year study to look into this and actually there should have been a study years and years ago there was many doctors that had already put this forward there's newspaper articles printed about this way before this happened to Jeff but nothing had kind of really happened so that was promised to the Astral family and a journalist Sam Peters who had been leading the concussion in rugby campaign for the Mail on Sunday did a little bit of digging, realised it hadn't been done. Um, years later, approached the Astor family to tell them. And obviously they were devastated. Um, they started a Justice for Jeff campaign and then they got his brain examined by Dr Willie Stewart, who's one of the um, leading scientists within all of this. He's diagnosed many, many people. He found CTE. So that's when the conversation really changed because that's when they knew for sure that it was due to heading footballs. Before it was industrial disease, it was likely that it was done, but kind of CTE was plain as day. So they've been advocating for 20 years for things to be done. The last couple of years in particular, I think there has been a real influx of support. The kind of conversation has shifted. There's less people shouting at them to stop ruining the game and there's more people sort of standing beside them there's also you know sadly countless more stories of this happening to other people and also now kind of coupled with their fight and you know advocacy for changing football there's also now kind of 150 player strong litigation against rugby for the same reason so Jeff Astor was the tip of the iceberg and now I think, you know, the rest is revealing itself. I want to talk a bit about the reluctance of the sporting world to accept the problem and sort of own it as something that needs to be addressed. So I want to be clear that like, I am playing devil's advocate here because it seems to mm-hmm. me that the, that the answer is potentially quite obvious. But a lot of people would see boxing for example I mean football is probably a bit less obvious but like NFL boxing rugby whatever people are going to go well obviously if you're going to you know you've seen the state of a rugby player's ears if you're gonna yeah you know (laughs) whack yourself in the head again and again and again clearly that is going to damage you what do you think about that are there things that could be done to minimize the damage that are not being done Yes, I think absolutely there are things that could be done. And I think a lot of it is about recovery time. So if a player does come off with a concussion, not playing them six days later, Mm -hmm. like making sure that there is adequate space for them to recover. I think it's really difficult. And I actually had a lot of conversations with um, both rugby players and um, footballers about this. 
because you're also contending with like the culture of sport and also the buzz and like the feeling of playing for your team with you know loads of people that you admire in front of fans and that yeah just adrenaline buzz of being on that pitch do you want to be on a bench absolutely not do you want to be where the action is yes how good does it feel and I said this the other day actually like you know it's a very well fundamental human trait isn't it when we overcome an obstacle that's been particularly difficult like the payoff like the reward is always amazing like Mm. whether that's you know you revise for your exams and you smash them all that feels really good or you know you finish decorating a house or you're winning a match with your team in front of even if it's in front of a hundred people I think that's a very difficult thing to to stop doing I think now people are more aware I think would some continue to play or you know just accept it yes I think absolutely a lot of people would however I don't think it has been clear the extent of damage being done to the brain I think the focus is often on lacerations or broken bones but I think because the brain is kind of like conceptual like that we can't see it it's not that we don't think it's important but I just don't think it's as easy to comprehend as like oh a broken bone therefore I should you know probably not walk on my leg versus the brain which there's not that even if you kind of you're dizzy or you have headaches I don't Mm. know there's just something about it that I think is hard to grasp. So as well as people in sport you found that actually this is something that victims of domestic violence were suffering from as well, right? Could you tell us a bit more about that? There's only kind of really two papers done on CTE in women. Um, One really um, prevalent paper that I speak about in the book, which was on the punch drunk wife, which was, it's the title of the paper, a woman who suffered extreme violence from her partner and essentially at uh, autopsy in the in the brain scan had the same brain as a boxer and I think what's important to know is that the brain doesn't know what's hitting it so you know if it's a boxing glove in a ring if it's the football on a pitch or if it's kind of the fist of partner behind closed doors you know there's no differentiation between those hits and you know in extreme violence situations the accumulation of violence over and over again like that can be the same amount as someone doing heading drills in football and there isn't a load of research because most of the brains that have been donated are by men there's an exceptional um charity in the u.s called pink concussions run by Catherine snedeker that's really trying to shift that calling for brain donation looking into um, traumatic brain injury within females and that's across domestic violence athletes and the military which are another really at risk group of this disease military personnel and you know with domestic violence the problem is a lot of the time the you know the brain has to be donated it's not a kind of just a part of a normal post-mortem doing an autopsy on the brain to look for CTE Mm. and often the the next of kin is responsible for releasing that brain if that next of kin is the perpetrator then that's not going to happen Women are more susceptible to concussion in sport. Again, there could be many reasons for that. It might be kind of our skeletal system. It could have something to do with hormones. Um, I don't think there is a definitive answer on that, but I know a lot of people that are researching it. But that link is absolutely valid between CTE and domestic violence because 
I think it was um, Professor John Hardy at UCL who said, you know, essentially that is boxing. Yeah. The punch drunk wife, that was boxing. So, and, you know, there's very real world consequences, like dangerous consequences for women who might be suffering a traumatic brain injury, especially when, you know, you factor in things like making police reports, standing up in court, like suddenly having you know if you they do manage to leave and then having to kind of figure out everything alone if you have been you know a survivor of financial abuse as part of domestic and violent abuse um you know figuring out administrative tasks alone with a traumatic brain injury can be an absolute nightmare so it is an area that and and I know a lot of people are very passionate about this and bringing it to the forefront doing what they can but essentially without female brain donation there's just not that much that can progress other than like raising awareness and starting the conversations so I want to ask you the big question I guess as you know Hannah and listeners know just to shoehorn it into conversation again I have also written a book about football due to be published on June the 9th thanks (laughs) and one of the things that surprised me I guess which is stupid really because I think about some sports I think about like boxing and I think about NFL but I think one of the things about football that really struck me is how exploitative it is and how players play through injury and, you know, they're they're taking these like anti-inflammatory drugs or whatever to keep them going just to play and, and, you know, and their careers are over really by the time they're like 32 Mm. and then they're just essentially discarded. And, And all right, we talk about the wealth of Premier League footballers, but, you know, it's... It is very much a sliding scale in terms of footballers, you know, across the board, outside of the Premier League, for example. I wondered how the podcast and the book and the research that you've done and the people you've spoken to, I wondered how it had changed the way you felt about sports. I think the big thing it made me realise is although a lot of the attention is on kind of professional players and you're right in terms of, you know, the amount of times you see, oh, these guys get paid enough to take it Mm. as if like your salary somehow stops you from requiring safety (laughs) or like Mm. that's the payoff. Like, oh, you get paid so much, therefore we don't protect you. But what I'd never actually thought about till I started doing this was who looks to professional players grassroots? Who looks to professional players and grassroots kids? And they're the Mm. ones that are ultimately, again, had been missing from the conversation. Benjamin Robinson's story first kind of came to the attention. Andy Bull wrote an article almost 10 years ago now, maybe even 10 years ago. And then it was kind of, oh, this is really rare, despite the fact that like numerous other young people have died from second impact syndrome. But I think it was that it was how whatever happens in the professional league trickles down professional league you know regardless of whether they're playing on or whatever they do have access to the best medics in the world they do have access to private healthcare. if you're playing on at school or your grassroots you don't have that same protection mm. you can't just take six weeks out because you're likely doing a job or you know going to school i think it's very difficult and i think that's something that needs to be taken into account is who's who's watching and it isn't just about protecting those professional players but it's about making sure the game is safe because regardless of whether you say to a kid oh you know don't do that if they see you know their hero doing it they're gonna do it kids copy weird shit like they (laughs) my goddaughter whenever she'd say she was going on holiday because she'd seen it on TV, we'd be like, oh, where are you going? She'd be like, oh, Tenerife, Atoll Protected. Because she'd seen that Atoll Protected <laughs> advert, right? So if you see the person that you think is amazing, like, 
heading a football or going in for a tackle with their head, like you're going to do it regardless. So I think there is a responsibility there that trickles all the way down. And I mean, it's really hard now in terms of like, you, you just see it so much more. As Dr. Anne McKee that said, and she's doing autopsies, you know what I mean? She came from a big footballing family, like big NFL supporting family. And I mean, she says in the podcast that she just can't watch it the same way anymore because she's seen players on her table, you know, as she's slicing their brain. So I think it does change how you view things, but it doesn't mean for a second that anybody wants to stop people from playing. It's just a conversation that needs to be had. And I don't think at this point people do have definitive answers, but the questions still need asking. It is a physically beautiful book but it's also you know it is it is beautifully written and it is as you say like very accessible written in a language that I as someone who you know would not class myself as a scientific person particularly can make sense of which is what you've set Mm -hmm. out to do and and very much achieved so you know congratulations it is a really really wonderful book and I do hope people will go and check it out where can we follow you on social media to see what you're up to next so i'm on twitter which is where kind of the majority of conversations around the book or cte and concussion occur it's where most of the kind of key players and voices are so my handle is at h walker with a capital w underscore brown capital b i'm on instagram i'll post occasionally but uh, that's just my full name um, or my website, which is hannahwalkerbrown.com for kind of any talks or events I'm doing. But I'd say more so now for all its sins, Twitter is a good <laughs> place to stay in touch, particularly around like the book stuff. The book is published and available now. Hannah, thank you very much for joining me. No pleasure. Thanks for having me. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Mick, what the fuck just happened? (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, this week we watched Three Women, Robert Altman's 1977 two-hour slice of avant-garde batshittery, complete with weird paintings and sinister woodwind. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, you're getting flashbacks. So perhaps indicating that 1970s cinema goers weren't keen on emerging blinking into the light saying, sorry, what the fuck now? Three Women wasn't a box office sensation, despite Hollywood studio financing and distribution. Critics were much kinder, however, and Three Women enjoys a 94% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, with our old mucker Roger Ebert a huge fan, giving the film his full four stars and calling it a masterpiece. I mean, it's bonkers, isn't it? (laughs) Altman wasn't shy of the unpredictable, experimental and divisive, and his claim that he dreamed three women, the plot, the vibe, even the cast, makes a little bit of sense of the trippy, feverish phantasmagoria of what happens between and to Millie, Pinky and Willie at the Purple Sage apartment. It owes a lot to Ingmar Bergman's exploration of duality, insanity and personal identity, which is Persona from 1966. But back to Three Women. It's very much a film of two halves and then an extra bit for shits and no giggles. The first half is a Mike Lee-esque sort of cringe comedy. And I'm saying comedy, but it's albeit 
you know, more likely to elicit a right eyebrow raise than any belly laughs about mismatched flatmates. We've got Bossy Boots Millie, Shelley Duvall, and the childlike Pinky, which is Sissy Spacek. And there's more than a smidge of single white female prescience, as Pinky doesn't just look up to Millie, but wants to be Millie. Although God knows why, because everyone else seems to find Millie an exhausting drag, planning dinners and dates that never seem to happen. But what of woman number three? That's Willie, played by Janice Rule, pregnant and silent, most often found in an empty swimming pool, painting godlike creatures that menace each other, saying nothing, but clearly noticing as her ne'er-do-well husband Edgar gets pissed and philanders with Millie. Well, at first with Millie, at which Pinky is distraught, begging her to consider Willie and the unborn baby. Millie's having none of it and yells at Pinky to get out, which Pinky takes pretty dramatically, actually, hurling herself into Mm. a swimming pool, and it turns out a coma. Then shit gets real weird. Pinky wakes up, but no longer thinks she's Pinky. She has become Millie, taking Millie's bed, writing in her diary, taking on her characteristics, even shagging dusty old Edgar. And Millie? Well, she's clearly freaked out, but instead of another confrontation, she retreats into herself, becoming more like Pinky was before the pool and the coma and all of that nonsense. Mm. And then Willie goes into labour, which is something Millie and Pinky discover when a pissed-up Edgar breaks into their apartment looking for a shag. He has, of course, abandoned his wife in childbirth, the massive prick, and Millie and Pinky run to her aid. Pinky, however, is frozen in fear and her failing to get medical help while Millie tries to help Willie means the baby is sadly born, stillborn. Then shit gets a bit weirder, because why the fuck not? Edgar's dead, Pinky's back to being childlike and now she's calling Millie mother. Millie's dressed like Willie and working Edgar's old bar and all three women are living in Willie's house as a family. The end. And yet still so many questions. Did they shoot Edgar? I mean, probably. Will we ever know? No. Even Altman says he wasn't sure. Is the film a dream? Is it a series of dreams? Are the three women actually just one woman? Jen. Oh, Jen. What did you, our self-proclaimed basic bitch, make of all of this? Oh, my goodness. The music is... I can't lie to you. It's it's quite annoying. It's really annoying. I watched this on Friday night. I watched it with my mum. Kath's like the the fourth star of Rated or Dated at the moment. <laughs> so we both agreed. So it's so boring to begin with. Like, it's fucking long, man. The first act is long. But I actually think he sets the scene quite well mm. with it. Like, on reflection. At the time, I was like, bloody hell. We've been here a long time and nothing has happened. This is dull. It's just fucking panpipes, right? <laughs> I think it's a, some sort of jazz flute. Yeah, I don't know what it is, but it's it sounds horrible. Anyway, <laughs> you get to a point, and and then obviously the characters sort of are drawn out a bit more, and Millie is just painful, painful, painful to watch. Oh, how to describe it? Like it's so uncomfortable mm. and hard to watch, but so compelling. Yeah. I didn't like it, but I couldn't stop watching. No, like you you can't take your eyes off it, but you really fucking want to take your <laughs> eyes off it. Completely batshit mental. I don't know what else I can say about this really, Mick. So, this, so I hope you've got some questions. Had you seen it before? No, I'd never even heard of it. I didn't even know who Robert Altman was. Um, I obviously looked him up. A friend of Clive Owen, uh, <laughs> Gosford Park. Who yeah, knew? yeah, the, the first Downton Abbey. Yeah. 
Well, certainly its precursor. Yeah, he was super famous. Like, the auteur. I uh, write the film, I uh, produce the film, I uh, direct the film, I do everything. I dreamed the film in this case. And yeah. I first learned of Altman reading Easy Riders Raging Bulls, which is an incredible look at Hollywood in that kind of era. And mm. he did MASH, which was obviously a huge film. Yeah. Not about the Vietnam War totally about the vietnam war so he got that reputation for saying stuff and breaking taboos and i was like and he still won't call three women and it's having a birthday that sounds interesting so it is about three women and the women are the ones on the screen all of the time apart from edgar the creepy old bastard yeah. and he doesn't get masses of screen time even if his role is quite important so i wondered whether you thought jen that because it is a focus on women it is a feminist film oh God, I don't know. Do any of them have any agency, really, until the end? That's quite a hard question to answer. I think Millie and Pinky look like they have some sort of agency. You know, they are women living single women lives. They've got a job, albeit not a great one, at like a spa yeah. where they help geriatrics get sort of spa treatment. But they are looking after themselves. There's no man involved. No. Um, Willie's more complicated. She too has a fair bit of agency in that she's just left her own devices, but maybe more because she's, she's got a feckless her. husband. Yeah. yeah. I don't know though, because Millie is on her own, but she is desperate for some love, isn't she? She or, or something like she really, really, really wants a boyfriend. She's such a lonely character and she, yeah. she isn't likeable, but I ended up feeling no. really sorry for her. The fact that she's oh, just yeah. talking and no one's listening and she tries to buy her happiness. She's such a consumer. She wants, you know, mm. she's proud of the way she looks and she's, you know, she's gorgeous. And she wants her flat to look gorgeous and she decorates it and she follows recipes that she reads in magazines. She's she's doing everything she thinks she should do to get the life she wants. And yet it evades her. Because she's fucking irritating. Like, she's really... <laughs> I mean, you couldn't, could you? Like, you couldn't imagine it. Like, it'd be painful to know Millie, wouldn't it? So... She's not a likeable character, but she's not nasty. She's not mean. She just, she wants what she wants. And you're right, she's a total, total consumer. So I'm not sure that Millie is a deeply feminist character. Pinky is just, I mean, what can you say about Pinky? Like, I don't, I don't even know what Pinky was supposed to be. Like, I genuinely just completely baffled by it. Because she was a bit weird to start off with, wasn't she? She's very childlike. I looked it up and Sissy Spacek was 26 when she made this film, but yeah. she looks about 14, 15. She looks so, so young. And yeah. it was post-Carrie, so she was massively famous. Carrie had come out the year before. I think she's possibly more sinister in this than she is in Carrie. Pinky's quite terrifying, that childlike naivety and that fawning over Millie. It's so odd, like she's only got one pair of pants. She doesn't like. She doesn't. <laughs> she she doesn't own anything. She's got like. It's very odd because I think she's creepy before she turns into Millie. She sort of like looks up to Millie. She kind of wants to be Millie in a way, and I don't know a huge amount about head injuries and 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 what they. I mean, they, I know they can like change your character or whatever, but like I'm completely baffled by the whole thing <laughs> one of the theories jen is that it's not three separate women that it's all just the same woman in different stages and sort of different identity crises right so can you explain that to me because no 
No. Because <laughs> I don't fucking get that either. So they all transition, right? And they share different characteristics. So while Millie is really vacuous and a consumer, she actually becomes the heart at the end. Yeah. She's the one who becomes mother. And she's yeah. looking after Willie. And she's yeah. looking after Pinky. And so mm-hmm. is it sort of child, mother, grandmother at the end? Do you think it's a feminist film? No, I don't. I mean, what wonderful roles for women, because it is a... Yeah, no, absolutely. Batshit crazy, but like a load to get their teeth in. And I think I think they're all extraordinary performances, because as we said earlier, even though I was like, I, I'm not really sure why things are happening, or that I like what's going on, but they're mm. so compelling. But no, it's, it's from a man's brain, I think. It's a, a man's take mm. on what women should be. Should they be... It, you know, is it maiden mother crone is that what we end up with yeah they don't have a huge amount of agency and i don't think any of them have like good things don't happen to them do you know what i mean my mum was like what bad thing is going to happen and i'm like well obviously mum i don't fucking know but because <laughs> i haven't watched <laughs> this either but um but yeah you, you're on tenterhooks the whole way through it's so tense it's so like what is going on like what terrible thing is going to happen it's underscored by that batshit fucking jazz flute like and it's you're just like god what is going to happen and it's you know nothing good is going to happen to anyone in this film and indeed i don't think it does does it i'm not sure they find themselves a family right they end up without edgar who we just get that final shot of the big pile of tires which i'm going to assume he's probably under after the gun accident in inverted commas Yeah, they end up a family. They're they're being looked after. They're looking after each other. They've fallen into these roles. So I think they get some sort of routine and contentedness. Do I think they're happy? No. On the basis of what happens in the film, I don't think they're going to have a really nice existence in that family unit, to be honest. So I read afterwards that it is implied that they killed Edgar. Hmm. I don't think it is necessarily... Do you think it's... I don't think it's heavily suggested. Oh, no, I thought they'd killed him. Yeah, but why? Like, I know he's a wrong'un and a bellend, but, like... Oh, no, he doesn't deserve to be murdered. I mean, I I don't think anyone deserves to be murdered, to be honest with you. Jen, just going to put that out there. Sorry if that's controversial. (laughs) But, no, he's he's an arsehole, but I don't think he deserves to die. Does he deserve for everyone to leave him? Yes. But I don't think he deserves to die. But I do think the implication is that they've taken over that controlling role in that they now run the bar and they have the house and they run the apartment. Yeah, I didn't think it was like necessarily that clear. I have to say, like the the timing of it all was very odd as well because it's sort of you've got that first act which seems to go on forever and ever and ever, and then like the middle bit where Pinky's sort of gone a bit, you know, where, where Pinky's in the coma, is kind of like probably about the length it needs to be and then the last bit it's just like they make a whole other film in five minutes yeah. and just tag it on to the end and you're just like what the fuck is this this is completely nuts yeah and i guess altman he dreamt it i mean he's absolutely nailed what it's like to have a dream where mm. you're like oh and that bit's all feels like fast forwarded and now characters are acting like other characters and i don't know what's happening and what's that fish tank doing and you know why have i got a mars bar mm. and all the weird things that just happen in a dream with very little explanation oh and they're dead now awesome like just accept it as opposed to finding any answers i think he captures mm. that really well do I find that satisfying as a film? 
I don't think so. No. Did you think it meant anything? Did it mean anything to you? Not, I mean, I don't mean that as a deep, profound question. Like, what does it mean to Mickey Noon? I just like, I just wondered, did you find any meaning in it? I think they're chasing who they are. They're trying to work out who they are. Pinky's really young and doesn't know yet. So she sees someone that she thinks is cool and tries to emulate them and wants to be them, but takes it mm. too far. Millie thinks that the person she's supposed to be is the woman that doesn't exist, but she reads about in magazines, this composite of qualities Mm. that she's gleaned from the glossy magazines. So she's trying to do that. Willie just seems lost. We don't really like Willie is a character like she's one of the three women of the title, but we know so little about her. She just seems forgotten. Like she doesn't have an identity at all. So I guess it's all about chasing identity and maybe they're surprised by what they end up as. Millie ends up being the mother, which I don't think you mm. would point out at the beginning of the film. I didn't hate it, though. Yeah, I didn't hate it. I didn't hate it at all. I do. I think the first the first act was way too long. But as I said, I found it like very compelling. Yeah, you can't take your eyes off it, but you so desperately want to take your eyes <laughs> off it. Please let this end. Yeah. Yeah. The film it made me think about is a really old film and it's it's sort of dreamy and it's that phantasmagoria again, those sort of fever mm. dream images. And it was The Cabinet of Dr Caligari, which is really avant-garde German film from the 1920s. Mm. And again, when I watched that, now that's, that's weird and it's excellent and I liked it and it's creepy as fuck. Whereas this one, I don't feel it had enough substance to make me kind of want to watch it again and work it out a bit more. And I think it maybe demands more than one watch to get a grip on what the fuck is going on. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't think I will ever watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I can see I can see what you mean. It did feel like a bit of a unnecessary wank fest. Like the guy, like Robert Altman, is just like, here's how clever I am. And you're a bit like, but is it clever, Robert? Is it? <laughs> I think it's kind of telling, isn't it, that the critics generally loved it and those who loved it really, mm. really loved it and thought it was just incredible and that the experiment worked. But punters didn't go and see it. Yeah. Rated or dated, Jen? Oh, man. I don't think it's dated, actually. As discussed, I have some criticisms of it, but I don't think it's dated. And I think the performances in it are insanely good. The three women are insanely good in it. So I think I would actually slightly begrudgingly, because I didn't necessarily have the whale of my life watching it, but I think (laughs) I would say probably rated. Yeah, agreed with everything you just said. Rated. So it's Hannah's pick next time, and mm. thankfully she's picked something with a, a linear story, so I'm, I'm ready to get on board, <laughs> and we're going to be watching Gross Point Blank. Standard Issue for All Women.